welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be about um, the ever-changing landscape of media tech in the venture capital world. Uh, and we're incredibly lucky today because we have actually three amazing people on the call instead of two. So we have two of our investors at K Street, Kenny Day and Marcus Brochley, and uh, Anna Ford, one of our portfolio company CEO founders. So I will let you guys introduce yourselves and then we'll kick it off. So Marcus, do you want to go first? Sure. Thanks, Paige. Uh, great to be here in such distinguished company and I appreciate being included. Um, so I came, to, I came to venture capital after a long career in media, first and for many years as a journalist. I was a Wall Street Journal correspondent, then I was editor of the journal, then I came down to Washington and ran the Washington Post for nearly five years. Most of that last, I guess, decade or so was adapting to the radical changes unleashed by the internet on our traditional business models. So at some point I decided to switch sides and see how I could use the technological change that was underway to help journalism. Um, so about, I guess, 10 years ago, uh, a guy I know, Sasha Vucinich and I launched a venture capital firm focused on building out media companies for the next billion people in places like Indonesia, Mexico, India. Um, and nearly all of our companies are, are digital. All of them are doing amazing things, many of them pioneering ideas that haven't really um, necessarily taken, taken place in the US. Um, at the same time that we launched North Base Media, I joined K Street Capital in part to educate myself on how really smart people like you and Kenny and others assess early stage investments. And I've learned a great deal from, from being involved in K Street. Cool, <laughs> thanks Marcus. We've learned a great deal from you too. You. Um, Kenny, do you wanna introduce yourself? Sure. It's great to be on the show, Paige. Congratulations. Anna, Marcus, it's great to be with esteemed company here. So, wow, it's tough to tell your story in one minute. Uh, how did I come to K Street? I'm a, <laughs> I'm a traditional Washington, D.C. publishing person, roll call newspaper back in the day, Politico. I joined K Street Capital. I think was I was one of the first 20 members. And now here we are 10, 11 years later, and we've had some hits. It's exciting. It's fun. We're just as important as being able to, to get into private uh, investing are the great friendships that, that we've been able to make and, and the bonds that we've been able to forge in this great, uh, this great ecosystem of news people, healthcare people, VCs, lawyers, lobbyists, and everyone coming together. So I'm a fan, as you know. Thanks, Kenny. And yeah. I'm a fan of, and I'm a fan of, of Anna uh, and, and book clubs too. So but that's a different. We'll get to yeah. that right. I was just going to say, Anna, I'll have you introduce yourself in a sec, but I think, I think all three of us, me, Marcus, and uh, Kenny are investors. We're investors from the very beginning in, in book clubs when we first did that deal. Um, at sort of like the seed stage. So it's just been really cool to see. So I'll let you introduce yourself now. Okay, thank you all. Um, very uh, flattered by, by your support of book clubs and also um, honored to be here. So I'm Anna Ford, founder and CEO of book clubs. I'm gonna share a book club story first and then I'll get into my personal background um, a little bit after. So. Book Clubs is, as you all know, but but for the audience, a, a social network for readers and a community organizing platform that makes it easy to start, manage, and join a book club. 
Uh, our app is currently hoping, helping over tens of thousands of clubs, over half a million uh, members connect and build community with tools to schedule meetings, facilitate discussions, and discover what to read next. Uh, Book Clubs offers features for clubs and individual readers like We'll get into, I think, some of these trends, um, but personalized book recommendations, reading lists, community reviews, discussion guides, the ability to manage members, post meetings, send reminder notifications, uh, conduct polls for book selection, scheduling, and more, streamline communications with group messages, DMs, live and asynchronous chat, keep a library of books, uh, digital shelving, the list goes on and on. Um, but, but the gist is all things books, book club, um, reading communities in one central place. It's available um, at bookclubs.com on iOS and Android. And I made myself sort of, um, or, or I think became a part of the, the media tech scene, if you will, purely um, through this passion project that is book clubs. My background is in uh, healthcare policy, so public health, HIV, infectious disease, biotech. I was a health policy junkie before I became uh, a tech founder, um, but I always loved uh, reading and being in a book club. I was a book club enthusiast. I've been in a book club um, since 2005. The very first one I joined was was in DC um, with a, a group of friends and colleagues. And uh, we built the very first version of book clubs purely to help us um, dig out of the never ending email chain that is involved in organizing the logistics for a book club. So it's really been a wild ride and, and um, I'm thrilled to talk to you all about it. Awesome, thanks Anna. I actually think that's a good story to kick this off because I was gonna say we should define what MediaTek is because I think a lot of people don't, um, wouldn't even think of book clubs in that category. <laughs> and, and, and feel free to disagree with me, Marcus or Kenny, because you guys would know better than I would. But um, like I think of MediaTek as being anything where you are creating or publishing content or organizing it or aggregating it online for people. And that's exactly what book clubs does for a very specific audience. Yeah, and I, I, I would add to that, you know, it's, it's also, you know, how you, how you can create new forms of media in through using technologies and new platforms to help to engage audiences or monetize audiences more effectively. Um, it can be everything in, in, in our view we look at media tech as anything from like content analytics tools to figure out how to, you know, serve audiences better, um, digital content paywalls. So you can do manage subscriptions, AI tools that you can use to nowadays create different forms of content. Um, you know, it, it all sort of, it's all around like what, what are people reading or, or viewing and, and how do you connect with them in a way that you know, serves them best and engages them most and obviously, from a business point of view, allows you know, allows the company to monetize. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really good definition. Um, we don't look at that many media tech companies. It's not really our main focus area, but it is a regulated market. So we do see a lot of them. Um, and I guess like what I was thinking is just maybe we kick it off by talking about some of the trends you guys are seeing in the media tech space. It can be any type of trend. Um, so I won't, I won't make it a leading question, um, but yeah, let's start there. Anna, do you? Sure, I'll chime in just on, on one trend that we've certainly been noticing at book clubs and, and capitalizing on, and that is the growing um, desire and I'd say need and necessity of 
media brands, content creators, influencers, publishers, titans, podcast hosts, you name it, um, really wanting to connect with their uh, readers, viewers, um, you know, directly, but also to create a community among them. So we have seen, you know, it's book club is and book book clubs and book club in general is certainly having um, quite the the uh, phenomenon and renaissance, if you will, we are seeing all types of book clubs being created um, from 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 media brands and companies with all sorts of you know, commercial interests, but really at the core, the desire to create community among um, their viewers, readers, listeners, um, et cetera. So, so that that's that's one one trend that I certainly hope um, continues and has been really fun to follow and serve. Yeah, I mean, what what Anna says is more broadly, it is a defining trend of our time, which is the verticalization of content consumption. People tend to go with their affinity group. They consume and share content with people who are interested in the same topics that they're interested in. And there have been a lot of negative implications of that, like, you know, we've seen in the in the news world, you know, people choosing to read content that they like. It happens to not be true, but it happens to be something that intrigues them or interests them and or arouses their political passions. So they they hew to that. But more broadly, you know, you can get better information on and deeper information on virtually any topic than you ever could before. And so you know, in, in almost every sector of media, what you're seeing is people sort of reading in and paying for content in the areas they care most about. And so people are just, you know, churning out more content for those specific audiences. That's true for everything. I mean, it's true for people who are hobbyists. If you're a skier or if you're a wine lover, you can get more deeper, more real-time information than you ever could before. And so I think that that trend is is well underway. It has some complicated implications um, for democracy because the old system where everybody read the same thing and we were all basing our judgments, political judgments on, on what we were all reading, we all had the same set of facts. Those days are sort of gone. People have different sets of facts and that's problematic for societies, especially democratic societies. Um, and of course, layered on top of that are people who create misinformation, which is another I mean, you, it's a trend that's not a good trend, but there is a there's a powerful trend in the world towards um, sort of confected information that is purports to be factual and is intended to drive people to a certain specific viewpoint or outcome. And what about, um, I guess I'm gonna ask this just because everyone's talking about it, like how are you seeing in the media tech world what's happening to valuations of tech companies? Can I, I, I just take that real quick? So I think it's really, it's funny that there's been a kind of reversal in the valuation hierarchy because it, it used to be, unfortunately, when I was there, the traditional media companies had relatively low multiples because everybody thought they were going to be disrupted and supplanted by new media. So you had companies like Vice and BuzzFeed commanding these multi-billion dollar valuations and companies like the Washington Post, where I worked, or Time Magazine saw their lofty valuations sort of crumple. But it turns out that the value of brand, the value of depth and quality, the loyalty of audiences, all those things that traditional publishers have seems to be worth a lot. I, I was, I looked before we got on this call, New York Times today has a price to earnings multiple of 37, whereas BuzzFeed is trading on NASDAQ for less than half its annual revenues. <laughs> um, so I think, 
I, I don't think, I think profitable digital media companies that have audience loyalty and, and growing revenues should do fine in this market and elsewhere. And just to talk my own book, I, I think that digital media companies in other markets around the world are often quite strong because in many cases they are now the mainstream media because people weren't consuming a lot of media before they got their phones. And now all of a sudden everybody can consume media. So the media companies that are big in certain markets are, are sort of newcomers. Um, but I do think the valuations, you know, I think media valuations right now in the U.S., new media valuations are really sort of at a low ebb. Traditional media valuations are in in some cases, in many cases, holding up okay. And I, I will say one more thing about this, and we don't have to talk about valuation the whole time, but <laughs> when you think about media tech companies and how they get valued, Marcus, um, or, or even Anna, when you think about your own company, like, mm -hmm. what are you basing that off of? It's not as simple as obviously like a SaaS valuation where you're just doing a multiple of ARR. So I'm, I'm curious, what is what impacts that for you when you make those kind of investments? Anna, do you want to talk about your valuation? How you think about it? Sure. So I'll, I'll jump in and I think how we started this off of what is media tech and would you define book clubs as media tech? I think yes, but we can also be defined as 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 software, um, you know, as as organizing software, as consumer subscription, um, as a consumer subscription app, as marketing tech, uh, as a social network. It really depends on sort of the topic and and the audience. So, you know, the way that we have been valued and and sort of value ourselves and the trends that we've been seeing just in conversations with investors going through a fundraising round last year, you know, our, my, my colleagues and other founders in the trenches right now at early stage tech of any type, um, you know, there are a couple ways that we've focused on, on valuation before tightening for lack of a better word of, and reconciliations, uh, reckonings of last year, um, everything was sort of based on projected um, value per, per per active user and active of members. So that was sort of in the social network space or in the consumer app space, and you know, before we have really focused on monetization, much more than a multiple of revenue. And I think that will still um, maybe long-term hold true for us, um, but there has certainly been a, a dramatic shift towards in any scrappy way possible, it is time now to test all monetization paths much sooner than later. It's not just about growing that that community, that usership that we know will be valuable in the the future, and putting a you know a, a dollar per user um, model um, in place. So that's that's sort of how how we we started. That that's been rocked a little bit, and we are we are even for even classifying ourselves as media tech, seeing um, things focused much more on, on revenue and revenue multiples, even, even in the very early stages. Yeah. And I was going to say the same thing too, that in many ways, book clubs is kind of social network 2.0 in that old social was, here's me, this is what I relate to, but I'm pushing out to everyone. Whereas these are walled gardens in the true sense of, of this ability to organize uh, an ecosystem within a macro ecosystem, if that makes, if that makes any sense. And while I'm not back to the, the valuations as well, it's right. NASDAQ, uh, and a lot of tech, uh, and, and new media and social have tumbled or seen some struggles, uh, of resetting, I guess, of, of valuation because the revenues at revenues were down. And I think in, in, in many ways, 
and I'm seeing this, and this is anecdotally, but I'm seeing it a lot anecdotally. So there must be something to it that it wasn't because advertisers, be they political or issue advocacy or consumer or book publishers were reticent about social media or about spending on social media conceptually. It's that they wanted something more efficient because everyone is looking for something, not just to get around the cook, right. They in the new cookie post cookie world, but they, there is, there's just this yearning desire to try something new and maybe that is more tactical. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how these shake, these shakeouts always result in greater efficiency. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Kenny, you should talk a little bit about the, what the cookie-less world is, just so people know. Well, right. I mean, Europe and the United States passed, passed legislation that, you know, you can't drop cookies. You can't just pixel and create a long tail uh, on users. So when they are on their personal devices or desktops, when they're doing their business online, that you can target them based on where they have already been before. You can't build profiles and databases like we used to because it was legal of IP address, mobile device ID, postal address through voter registration lists and marrying the three of them to create a profile. And we had a, you know, a highly accurate system for targeting individuals down to the zip, zip plus four level down to the, to the street and candidates on both sides of the aisle, super PACs on both sides of the aisle, agencies on both sides of the aisle use that very, very effectively. And now you can't do that. And well, unless users opt in. And so now as, as you're seeing most places you go online, whether it's a website, whether it's consumer website on your phone, accept all cookies, but if you reject, right, or re reject all cookies, you can hit reject all cookies, but oftentimes that's, you know, that's in a smaller font. We're opting in, we've created an ecosystem where now people are just opting in. So instead of, but that information doesn't necessarily get stored by a big, uh, you know, DMP, DSP that is serving and, and warehousing all of these profiles but it does give the power to the individual publisher if you're opting in. So now perhaps the St. Louis Post-Dispatch doesn't have to necessarily give up all of their online ad revenue to put it on a network and someone else sells it for half the cost and marks it up, which is still an honest business, um, was an honest business. Now they can control that. They can they can charge a higher premium to advertisers because they now own that relationship. So in many ways, it's good, but in terms of scale, right? And of course, the fragmentation. I mean, we just got an Apple TV. I know I'm I'm, I'm old, I'm old school, right? I'm I'm reluctant to give up technology if it already works, but uh, it, it is it's created a great amount of disruption, concern, but also opportunity. So. Uh, that is a, a positive thing. And ultimately, data privacy, individual privacy is, uh, is something we all believe in. So it's funny yeah. because a lot of this. Uh, go ahead, Marcus. Well, I was going to say, I think what Kenny's getting at here is it, it is a really interesting time because the, you know, the first wave of digital media and the growth of revenues and the, the power of the platforms which had which controlled the data 
you know, there's a reason everybody's using network ads, everybody's using Google ad products to place their ads into different platforms. And all of that was possible because people effectively had surrendered their data. And this, the changes now in privacy rules, the, the loss of cookies, which are these tracking pixels on content, so they keep track of where you're going, means that actually, as Kenny said, the individual publishers are suddenly gaining back a little bit of power. And that's important. And so you ask about valuation. You know, one way you think about valuation is what's the opportunity? What's the so-called total addressable market? You know, how big can something, how, how big could something go? And what is a company's, if you're looking as an investor, like what kind of traction does somebody have in generating that revenue? And what is the potential? And it used to be actually, it was very easy to look at a lot of small publishers who were trying to get off the ground and, and especially people who are trying to use more general information. It was sort of like what you could already get a thousand other places. And you say, well, you know, in the, in the, in the cookie world, there was, they didn't have any special advantage. They were just going to get a bunch of programmatic advertising if they were lucky and, and make their money that way. That was actually BuzzFeed's big mistake is they thought, they thought if they just had, you know, 100 million monthly unique users, you know, clicking on these listicles and then they were just delivering advertising in for, you know, networked advertising. It was all, you know, computer driven advertising. It was going to be a big business. And in the end, it hasn't worked out because the quality of the content was, you know, it was engaging up to a point, but mediocre and, and unoriginal and derivative. And on top of that, they were whole, totally dependent on, you know, these, these um, automated advertising services that were in turn auto dependent on all this data. And so I, I do think uh, what matters in media is changing all the time. And you got to, I think every six months, you kind of have to reassess and see where the future is going. I think it's super interesting. Are you seeing, Marcus, especially because you invest internationally and, it, you know, I mean, a lot of this already existed in Europe for a long time before it came to the U.S. Now it's in the U.S. and everyone's suffering because of it um, or the other way around. Depends on your view. Uh, and I guess I'm just curious, what is the how does the rest of the world functioning with this or is this like old old regulation for them or has it not even come anywhere near the cookie world that we live in now? Well, no, I think. Europe and the U.S. are so big, and the U.S. is so important to the biggest digital media companies that or digital platforms that anything that happens here or happens in Europe sort of kind of ripples out across the entire world. But I'll tell you, one of the things that is is very different about digital media and traditional media is that the global brands and media have much less value in, in, in traditional. Let me just stipulate: when I talk about media, I sometimes fall into thinking of media as like magazines, what we would have once thought of as magazines, newspaper and television companies, but I'm not really thinking in terms of streaming and, and some of these new things. But in the old days, you know, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, we had we had editions in Asia and editions in Europe, and we could sell advertising in that region, and we were treated with great respect because we were this important, you know, kind of vaguely imperialist news organization. And, you know, I was a reporter, I'd go to India and I'd get immediately taken literally from the airport to see the finance minister one time. And it was like, you know, it was important. What digital has done, which is, is actually great and empowering for the world, is digital basically means everybody has the same set of tools and everybody has visibility into what everybody else is building. So if I'm a if I'm starting a media company in India, I can see what you know the most creative people in the U.S. are doing. I can see Jessica Lesson starting the information. I can watch you know Jim Bankoff trying to build Vox Media. I'm sitting here in 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 
New Delhi or Bombay and I have the same set of tools that they have and I can build something to the same quality standard. So in India, you have the can, which is like the information. And it's really good. It's excellent. And what's happened is digital has actually empowered and enabled media companies in different markets to develop products that are distinctly their own and culturally relevant. And I think that's, that is actually important, very important trend. I, I wouldn't bet on the globalization of media anymore. I would much, I would far prefer to bet on who are going to be the winners in specific markets. We just invested, for example, in a company that's a Bengali, a Bengali language streaming video service. And the Bengali market is 400 million people. So, you know, it's, it's a huge market and they don't, it's not going to, you know, putting Bengali subtitles on Netflix shows is going to be way less engaging for people than actual Bengali content. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, I saw the same thing too, Marcus. I was looking for a bio of someone or some, uh, an update for someone in an ad, actually an ad tech company in India. We'll, we'll discuss that offline. And there were, let's call it business insider, insider, or digiday type ask 10 different in India based stories on the same essential write-ups on the same story, but from legitimate, like there's been this explosion of our proliferation of uh, regional news and, and, and reporting. And, and maybe that's a, that's a good thing. Um, and we're start, you know, we're seeing that too, the power, into the hands of uh, local local publishers, and then the axioses of the world doing you know local editions is just a, a, another classic example of them burrowing into uh, to that space as an alternative to the eyewitness news or the weather gang or next door yikes. Um, so it's really wild time. I mean GDPR, right? That's the big that's the big piece of legislation that emanated from the UK and then the European union uh, has forced everybody's hand, but then it also homogenizes the code and the standards so that everyone's got to play, but apply conceptually has to play by the same rules. The simple, just like FCPA, right. A foreign corrupt practice act and the UK bribery act, right. The enforcement there created a, you know, well, a boom for a while in uh, FCPA law practice, uh, and compliance um, consulting. So uh, same, it's almost like the GDPR post cookie world consulting industry boom is starting to compress because everyone has essentially got a new solution, which is yeah. by something new. Which speaking of that, I'm curious, like if you, what you guys are seeing in terms of regulation beyond that or how that's changing now that people are sort of changing their behaviors to accommodate to the GDPR rules. Well, I'm, I, I, I was going to just stumble around and not say anything useful. <laughs> so maybe it's not changing. Maybe that's the My observation is that it's in some ways, while AI is hot and chat GPT and all is, is and metaverse is, is the, is the trend. We're also seeing this return to contextual, which was always the, come on, contextual demographic, you know, we're trying to reach adult male voters in Missouri. Don't give me Ozark Lake fishing uh, channel, you know, or magazine. And but with this comes YouTube. I mean, and I feel 
I feel like that has to be stated in any uh, conversation, just the absolute scaling up of YouTube and content. We don't, we don't let our kids watch, uh, have TikTok on their phones because I don't want anyone ripping off my credit card. I don't know. They watch you. They just watch TikToks on YouTube. Everything is there. The reach for YouTube is, you know, 94% of, you know, uh, Americans over the age of 13 are yeah. accessing it, you know, once a week. Yeah, that's so, why everyone's telling me to put this podcast on YouTube. So we yeah. really got to figure that out. And so there you can actually get contextual. You can actually get what, close and to... What do you mean by contextual? Maybe just explain that for us. So if you are, let's say, Pennsylvania is the ultimate, is going to be the ultimate battleground. It's a presidential battleground. Uh, you've got a big Senate. Uh, it's a Senate battleground. Uh, presidential battleground, there are three or four, according to the last Cook report, uh, toss up uh, congressional races. So there's going to be limited ways you can actually reach voters in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So here, uh, let's say on YouTube or on the Pittsburgh local news, contextual means, well, if I'm trying to reach people who are voters in Pennsylvania, let me run and, play, and let me go local. Right. And, and not just through cable. Right. Uh, and, and going by device ID, but going by what are they watching? Because why would you waste your money on someone who is watching Casey, Senator Casey, get trolled? Right. So contextual means what is the actual content of the programming? Not just what is the demo? What's the type of person that that might be watching? And look, sports is the great equalizer because Republicans and Democrats and independents like their home teams. So Anna, I guess I'm just curious how you think about that with your own users and their, their types of personas and what value that has from a publisher perspective. Yeah. Um, okay. So <laughs> I think the way that we have been thinking about uh, user data um, all the regulations around uh, data, privacy, advertising, um, as it pertains to the, the trove of, of data that we're sitting on regarding um, reading uh, preferences and recommendations and those insights. We, we use, um, I think this is, this is also like a segue right into, into trends in AI. We, <laughs> We're very careful um, about how we work with publishers for advertising and, um, you know, genre tagging and targeting and that sort of thing for book promotion. Um, we do serve a lot of um, book recommendations based on AI um, at the individual level and to the book club level. Um, soon we'll be doing book to book uh, recommendations in a similar fashion. Um, we have been doing this all in the spirit of better serving our users and our readers, but also knowing that the data that powers these algorithms um, uh, could have a lot of valuable uses and misuses as well. So I, at a high level right now, we aren't doing a whole lot with that data that is not just held within um, you know, that, that we own and to kind of serve back uh, from a recommendation perspective to our users. Is that, is that what you're asking Paige? Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, exactly. 
at this point. Um, I think in our direct work with publishers, you know, that see book club book clubs as a, a traditionally hard to reach audience, but very valuable segment for, for many books that are tagged as potential, you know, book club picks. Um, we're, we're broadening that, I think, more narrow definition for publishers because we can actually show that there are book clubs that read all types of genres, all types of books in, in ways that are surprising and delightful for publishers, but they don't quite know what to do with that data yet um, from a marketing perspective. Um, you know, we, we do utilize that data to hopefully challenge thinking and marketing budgets and, and make things more of a win-win for publishers and readers. Um, beyond that, that's, that's, that's it for now. Um, okay. for I, now. It seems like it also is interesting just that publishers might be able to understand how their readers like to read and what types of like crossover there is between different yes, genres of books yes. and types of authors and what the similar trends yes. are there. So then they can decide, okay, well, maybe we should come out with more books in this category or this right. type of author, or this writing style, whatever. Yeah. So it can certainly, it can certainly influence, you know, uh, deals and choices and print runs and all of that. Um, so there's, there is powerful data, the, the slippery slope there. And I've certainly, I was at an investor meeting last week and I was asked, you know, would book clubs ever think about, you know, using that, that data um, and AI to just write a book ourselves that we know certain groups of readers um, or clubs would like or you know how valuable could that be for publishers that might want to move in the ai space and there's so many media companies trying to do that already you know that feels a little irreverent to me as someone that that values the you know writing and storytelling so dearly but it's certainly um you know the the direction that everyone's sort of forecasting um and and we we are holding a lot of that 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 per, that data of reading habits what where the sort of adjacent um findings are page, you know, if you, that are, that are surprising, um, mm -hmm. in some way for publishers in the aggregate. Um, but drilling down, it's, it's a little, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Super interesting. That, and I guess, that's yeah. wild. I mean, you could actually, right. Have an AI written book about your top 10 titles and where you're getting the most book club yeah. activity and, and just, say, right, take the tone of these four writers and add these sort of general themes and, and outcomes and see what you come up with. Right. That seems like good. a far cry from like using chat GPT for, you know, content for SEO or that sort of thing I know. <laughs> on book well, clubs. But yes, um, we, that, that comes up in so conversations. We use book, book clubs for, for a book club. We started a, a, a gentleman's book club and there weren't, very, very many. <laughs> there were very many. I didn't know. You're right. Uh, were very many gentlemen. Well, it was called DC Gents. I didn't name it, but I just some guys. Terrible and, name. And and what did what did gentlemen read? Just out of curiosity. Well, so I I wish, and I'm not going to name the title, but I I almost wish that we would have had a chance to review this book. I don't know. It was a New York Times bestseller, and I and I hated it, and I just thought it was terrible. I'll tell you off uh, off mic, but. Uh, and everyone's raving about this book. It's like required reading. And the consensus was everyone just thought, like, God, like, this is just, why is this so popular? So then it turned into a conversation about, it was really more of an anthropological conversation about why are, why is this book so, why is this book trending right now? This is why you need book club's help in picking your next book club book based on your club's <laughs> actual, 
taste preferences. Okay. Color list is, um, you know, arguably not the best source for inspiration. <laughs> we're, we're open to recommendations. <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, now we're on the AI topic and in the interest of time, I think this is probably going to be our last topic. Are there other interesting, I guess, use cases that you're seeing AI for? I appreciate the examples you just gave, Anna, but I, I would just ask that more broadly to everybody else. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a few things I want to say about AI because I think AI obviously is getting a huge amount of attention. I don't think there's a company or an industry in the world that isn't thinking right now, what is the, what is the power of AI mean for them? And it really was all set in motion by the open, open AI's release of ChatGPT3 and now ChatGPT4, um, which is, as, as many people will tell you, you know, it's deeply flawed, it's problematic. It's like, you know, GPT3, I asked it to write a short essay on the colony of orcas living in Lake Huron. And it did, you know, because that's what I asked it to do. It's what's called a hallucination. It doesn't really exist. If you try it, by the way, I try it with chat GPT-4 and it doesn't do it anymore. It's like there's no, <laughs> so they're going to learn and they're going to get better. I mean, I do think that uh, the risk of these big AI engines that are scraping from everything is that they're like industrial grade misinformation machines. And, and the way they're structured, and what they do, they're effectively conventional wisdom by design because they basically are programmed. It's, it's a probability kind of system that generates information according to like most probable sequence of words based on all other sequences of words like that. It's, it's, it's remarkable what it does, but I think it's important for what it, the directionally what it tells you, which is, you know, that there's so much now that AI can do a credible and satisfactory job of. And obviously there are people in, in media and many other industries who are worried about their jobs. And the cruel thing you can say is, well, if you're worried about your job because of of chat GPT and AI, it means that whatever you were doing wasn't, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't as value add as you might like to think it was. It might've taken time and it might've been work, but it might not be something that, you know, is truly original. I think that from media point of view, these giant, these um, GPTs are gonna, two things. First, I think they're gonna end up being verticalized. I think there's gonna be a GPT for the legal industry. You know, mm -hmm. you wanna mm -hmm. understand what's the history of case law and something and, you want every, you know, every argument that was ever made around something and it'll, it'll read all the cases and they'll come back and it'll tell you. And I think there's going to be great use cases for that or for medicine. And in journalism, I think there's, I think there's a need for something called news GPT, which is based on, which would basically just scrape all its information from let's call it bedrock high quality news providers and, and not have any of the silly Silicon Valley facile arguments about, well, is Breitbart really news? It's not. And we can just move on and, and build something that's real. Um, I think there'll be, I think GPTs are going to, from a media point of view, are going to mark a return of the gatekeeper in the sense that somebody has to decide what's in this GPT or what's going to be, you know, if you're searching something, if you're looking for information from a certain GPT, somebody's making a decision about from what universe of content are you pulling, which will be interesting. Um, it's a great tool for, AI is a fantastic tool for very quickly for expediting the production of content, because a lot of content actually, you, you're basically, you're regurgitating, you're taking pre-known pre information and representing it and integrating in what's new. And I think a GPT can be very useful for that. So I think information will become faster. Um, 
but you know, I, I, I don't think, I don't know exactly what the business models are yet. In fact, one of the giant challenges around GPT from a, from a news media point of view, journalism point of view is the monetization question. Cause there's this, you know, if somebody takes my content and summarizes it and puts it in new words, is it, is it plagiarism? Is it somehow infringement of my economic mm -hmm. rights? Because I produce that content. All these questions are unknown. You know, how do you advertise against it? Um, you know, are you going to integrate advertising into, into, into content that's being produced by GPTs? Just like, it's just a giant set of unknowns, but I think everybody's focused on it. So it'll be, it'll happen faster than, than anybody would have expected a couple of years ago. Yeah. I see something like Rev, the transcription service and, and other transcription services like it. They have an automated AI version and it was never very good, but it was, gosh, it was a lot better than trying to dictate uh, a, a conversation and over time it got pretty darn good but it never got perfect and so you could pay 50 cents or 75 cents or whatever it is a minute but for a dollar 50 a minute a real person is going to come back in and actually proof the ai and i think the ai first then actual human because it's all about context it's they they Right, it's there's a nuance to, to language, written, verbal, audio, video, etc. That requires that. So, interesting. We could see, you know, humans coming in to assist the the robots, uh, as it were. Um, you know, in cases things like Redfin or the 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 realty services, they pick up listings from MLS. They just take the information, they put it up there. You can save that. You don't have to spend that three percent to to pay. Uh, a real estate agent, a person, right? They, why would you pay those fees? Because the app is not going to negotiate on your behalf if it's down to $2,000 on the, the offer. They're not going to get your paperwork straight and work with the broker to make sure that you're the one who gets the deal. They just can't do it. Um, I would say kind of as was the case, I guess, in the pick a decade, we'll call it the 90s, uh, the greenwashing right? Everything's all natural and we'll post this and post that. I think there's, there's a certain amount of AI washing that is, that is going on because if everyone has got some AI driven technology, well, I, I'm not seeing it, right? I think everyone says that they've got a proprietary AI, uh, proprietary algorithms. Uh, so who's actually works? I guess that's going to be uh, that's the question. See what works best. I think it's going to be the ones that have AI technology and then a real media planner coming in and actually placing the buys like robot. You're pretty good, but that, that site, this targeting parameter is actually way off. Yeah. Just in the interest of time, I think I'm going to skip to our final topic here, which is the, is there media tech that you guys would recommend for founders? And I say that because like book clubs is a great, uh, tool. And this isn't even a plug for book clubs, but I think it's a great engagement thing for companies to do. And it's super easy to use. That's like one example. Or like, um, I'm sure you guys have heard of uh, Substack, which is makes it really easy to publish your own content and make money off of it. It's a great, fantastic tool. But what are the other, you know, I would say like, really great up and coming things like that, that, that other founders can use or other business owners can use in their own, um, in their own business to make it better. Well, I would certainly plug book clubs for all sorts of reasons, but, um, 
as a as a tool to kind of uh, improve communication and uh, kind of community among um, employees and teams. Certainly, remote ones uh, has has been a a good use case uh, for founders of companies of all sizes, uh, even early stage. If you're like book clubs and your team is fully distributed, it's a it's a great way to to keep morale up. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I totally endorse what Anna said. I think book clubs is fantastic and it's a it's a wonderful platform. More people should use it. And I'm sure it has actually great applications because if you do run it, if you are running a company and you have people sort of like sharing content and ideas, that's probably all positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's there's a ton of interesting technologies now that that different people I mean, look, if you're if you're producing content, there's there's all these things now you can, I mean, there's, there's tools for influencers. Uh, I was just looking at something today and of course I can't remember the name of it, but it, it was basically a, a way of, um, for people to keep track of if you're a social media influencer, keep track of your success and, you know, generate specific, um, metrics around it. Um, you know, there's clout try to do that. Wasn't that, wasn't there something called clout that did yeah, that? Clout, it's, yeah. this is like a super modern version of that. Like you can, join up and it keeps track of all your engagement on different platforms. And um, there's a, we, we are, we're investors, full disclosure in a company and based out of the Netherlands called smart Octo. And it tells if you're producing content, whether you're a, a news or journalism publisher or a marketing publisher, it'll tell you, you know, how to, how to optimize whatever your content is. It's very AI driven. Um, but it, you know, it can take lots of information from lots of publishers and lots of previous experience and layer on top of that A-B testing and do it all in real time so that it tells you immediately, like, this content could be improved in the following way and it will improve your engagement. Um, you know, there's the, the, the range of tools, the kinds of things you can do now, you know, visual analytics. Um, we, again, we're small investors in a company in Israel that makes every photo or visible uh, photo or video searchable. So mm-hmm. you can, like... Mm-hmm find a product in that and then figure out how to buy it. So there's so many great tools now if you're producing content. I just think it'd be hard to limit it down. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, any final thoughts from you guys? Yeah, there's a lot of wild technology out there. Uh, everyone should have a podcast. Airs Next is probably uh, one of the leading companies in that space. And we do use a lot of technology. Um, Riverside for recording video and, and audio, Rev for transcripts, Canva. I mean, we haven't talked about Canva. I mean, what Canva has done to the design space and made chumps like me not too bad at, at, at designing and gave us tools that were easier to understand. Um, yeah, I mean, Canva's it's, it's really, it's really, really fantastic. At the end of the day, you still need people to go in. You still need adults or young adults. Frankly, or kids, if they if they know how to edit and they know how to properly tag someone in LinkedIn, so you don't tag the wrong person or company. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be really, really wild to to see how uh, how everything shakes out. Of course, it changes every five years, every year, every six months. So everyone, go get a book. Join yes, a club. read more. Join a book club. Yeah. Um, Thank you all for helping to promote book clubs. I, it is my hope that we can simplify logistics for every book club that's out there, but it's a personal mission to get more men in a book club. Um, I feel like there's 
you know, 90% of the users on book clubs right now are women and men are really missing out on, on all of the wonderful benefits of being in a community with others discussing books. So hopefully, hopefully this has inspired um, both sides, <laughs> all sides. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this. I think this was super interesting. Really appreciate Thanks it. This was really fun. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.